I can think about writing, when I do write and get those words down on paper, I find it helps me a lot. Welcome to You Should Write a Book About That. My name is Kim O'Hara. I'm an intuitive book coach at A Story Inside, and I'm interviewing fascinating people from all walks of life who have a story to tell. Do they have a book in them? Stick around and find out. Hi, this is Kim O'Hara, and I am so excited today to be talking to Nicole Petronell. Nicole is the CEO of Rain Communications, a strategic public relations agency that's headquartered in Charlotte. She founded Rain Communications with the belief that working women should support and empower each other to also pursue their passions. Good to talk to you today, Nicole. Thanks for having me. So we were just saying in the pre-call when we were trying to uh, organize the communication that it's a a time of flux in the world uh, that we're recording this podcast. I'd like this to sort of, you know, to be remembered, to be memorialized, because a lot of what we're going to talk about today is work-life balance. And, you know, right now, work-life balance is thrown into a whole other sphere with the coronavirus. Nicole, you seem to emulate when I look at your social media this work-life balance, but you're also very honest about it. How do you strike that now versus when you weren't married and didn't have kids? Is it easier and what has changed? That's a great question. Um, I feel like it's a constant work in progress, right? So part of the reason I broke out and actually started my own agency is because I didn't have work-life balance. Um, After having my second child, I was traveling all the time. And so my belief was, and this didn't necessarily turn out to be true, but um, that if I could do things on my own terms, I would be able to uh, schedule accordingly and have some of that balance. So as any entrepreneur would know, um, you actually work more hours. Uh, and then I think you traditionally do in an executive role. However, I get to do it a little bit more on my terms, and that does help. And so before, when you were in Chicago, because from what I understand, you worked for a lot of big firms and brands when you were in Chicago and you were woman on the street and, and, and making it all happen. There were aspects, though, of your life that were not as, uh, should I say, on the level. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, and I think it's an interesting thing to even just kind of talk about what some of our struggles are, you know, in public relations. And as you you know talk about, you know, social media and the things that we put forward, you know, there's an authenticity that that is there. But also knowing that, you know, working in PR, we also want to put our best foot forward. Right. We want um, to show that we're professional, to show that, you know, we have it together and build credibility and trust with clients. And so when I moved to Chicago, um, I've always kind of been a runner, if you will. Um, (laughs) And I really moved to Chicago. Yeah. uh, Looking to escape some of the things that, you know, where I felt holding me back and some of the traumas of my childhood and bad relationships and really moving to Chicago from the Twin Cities was a way that I more than anything kind of ran away and looked to start anew. So, well, people give me kudos and say, that's so awesome that you took this plunge and you moved to Chicago and you just, you know, chase hard after your career. Well, that's true. And I did do those things. The backstory is really that I was, you know, trying to fulfill areas of my life that, you know, I didn't, that I still had insecurities in and that maybe 
things that I hadn't hadn't dealt with. So, again, when we look at people, women, men, um, that we think, wow, they've got all of this, they've got it all together, and you know, they've done these great things in these careers, it's it's important to look at potentially why that is. Um, and for me, while I don't want to discount myself in the things I have accomplished, the really the root of that for me was was escaping some of the things that um, I really just didn't want to deal with. And you had mentioned that you didn't know that you had a different dad than the one that raised you. Is that correct? And then when you found out it was all that, you know, confusion about why was I not wanted? Correct. So there have been, it's interesting. So I have two children. And so when you go in and you kind of do that testing and they ask you about, you know, your family history, I always am like, well, I can tell you about my mom's side, my father's side, I really don't know. And so explaining this has been kind of an art form that I have been working on. So I'll (laughs) give it a shot. Um, (laughs) I like that an art form. I'm trying to figure out how much information do you need? How do I not get emotional about it, right? And telling you my life story. So um, for purposes of communications, I'll just kind of give you a little bit of a sequence of events I have come to find in crafting this that uh, that is the most effective way. So um, I was born, I'm 41 years old, um, you know, in the late 70s. And uh, my mom had actually gotten pregnant at 19 with her longtime boyfriend. And so he had decided that he didn't really want to be part of raising a child. Um, And my mom had decided that she was going to have me on her own. You know, it was definitely viewed as something that wasn't commonplace. Um, And I think that was obviously difficult for my mother. Um, Mm. So she decided to still have me even, you know, at that young age. And then um, when I was now, this is all clearly, I don't know this. this is all just the story I've been told because I wasn't born. Um, That's right. So then, yeah. So this is just, you know, the account of other people. And um, so then at, I believe I was two years old, potentially maybe three, she met my, what became my stepfather and they did get married. Um, And so they got married and I was raised essentially believing that this man was my father. Um, I recall asking for like my baby book when you were, you know, student of the week or whatever, and it was never around. And there were some things that, uh, you know, now looking back in hindsight that I was like, well, that was a little bit off. And, you know, I was raised with the last name of, of Taylor, which was my stepfather's last name, although I was never legally adopted. Um, okay. so, uh, I was, but however, on my birth certificate, it's just my mother's maiden name. No, no sign of my biological father. Isn't it um, interesting that so we have all these clues that we know as we're growing up, but we don't have the intuition that we develop over time as women to hone in on it. And also because people aren't telling us the truth, which really messes with our heads as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's interesting. One of the things that come out of, I think, any kind of situation like this, and I don't fault, I know looking back, like they're just trying to protect me, right? But at the end of the day, it's one of those interesting things because you feel like in that situation, you can't trust your gut. And I've had this as an adult a woman as well as yes. in other situations. That's one of the worst feelings of the world when you when you feel gut instinct on something and something's off, but you're told, you're incorrect. And in this situation, I wasn't told I was incorrect. I was just not told. Right. It's omission. It's your intuition. It's omission. Exactly. You know, it's omission. Exactly. And that can, and what you just said about not being able to trust your gut, that's huge. I mean, we operate so much from, well, from our heart, 
but from our gut as well as women, like we know, and I, and I hate that feeling when I know, and I don't follow through on it. And then it comes to pass. And I'm like, Oh, why did I do that? A hundred percent. And that's almost sometimes where the anger comes from. It's like, no, I felt this way. It was minimized that I felt this way, you know, and then turns out I should have really relied on what my gut was. And I don't think this was so much as a child, but it's just more so looking back and now looking at situations that as an adult, um, that I found I have had frustration through those things. Um, but as a child, it was really more so, you know, growing up and then uh, finding out that once my family, my stepfather, um, who would raise me as his child, um, they had went on to have my two brothers, which biologically are half brothers. I've never looked at them any differently, but they are my half brothers. Um, my mother and uh, stepfather, who I just considered my father, were, were getting divorced. And it wasn't until that had really started to happen that I was told that he wasn't my biological father. And in fact, um, you know, I had never met my biological father. And so um, that clearly, you know, shook my identity and, and trying to figure out everything from, you know, those around me not telling me this my whole life to mm-hmm. what does that make me and, and who am I? Um, right. And that was a really pivotal time, too, because I was a teenage girl, you know, or preteen girl. You want to believe, you want to believe, you know, that that's, it's such a young age. We want to trust and believe that what we see is real so we can go out in the world on that foundation and then thrive forward. But when it all is sort of a sham to some degree, then that's where the addictions come in and the running, as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, running from our, our authentic selves, because we don't really know who that is yet. So you get to Chicago and you become party girl who's, you know, dating guys, but yet also look at me, I have this amazing career. Yeah. And I think a lot of that was stemmed from, you know, moving along to Chicago. I I will say that when my, my stepdad and mother divorced, I was relieved because we had a very tumultuous home life. Um, Mm. And so when that happened, you know, it wasn't necessarily something I was upset about. Um, I was actually relieved in the fact that I didn't have to go to his house on weekends um, because he wasn't my biological father. Um, and working through some of that, he and I actually have a good relationship now and things have, have changed as I've seen him change and really, um, you know, work and have God in his life. And there's been a lot of positive uh, things in his life that have made us closer. However, I did meet my biological father right around that time at 15. Um, and I came to find, and this is pivotal, and I'm sharing this because I see how this has impacted me, was meeting him one time after it came, I actually had reached out to my biological grandparents on that side after finding out that he, that I, you know, I had those extra set of grandparents and they notified my biological father that I had indeed reached out. So he came to visit one time I met him. He told me about my three sisters, daughters that he had gotten married and were raising and showed me a picture of these three beautiful girls living in California. And, um, I never heard from him again. He flew back and that was the last I had heard from him. And for me, especially at that age, it really, really shaped what I thought about myself. Um, and I'm going to try not to get emotional. This is how, you know, wounds haven't fully healed. Well, this is also when you know, you should write a book about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) Write a book, go to therapy, all the things, all the things we should do. But, um, Well, no, but truly, but truly, I, I, I know I've, you know, obviously as a book coach, there's people that tell me stories, even if they're not necessarily writing a book with me yet. And they talk Mm -hmm. about the not the, the parental 
finding out that they were adopted, not feeling loved by a particular parent. <clears throat> and there's still a lot of, you know, confusion on how to go forward in a new story. And I do think that at some point, if you do write a book about that, you have this wonderful happy ending. And I know we're going to talk about how it's, you know, that your every day is not like sunshine and roses for you even today, but it is, it is a good ending because you have, you're here today talking about it very clearly, even though you went through trauma once you found out you weren't wanted. Correct. No. And, and that is, and those are things I try to remind myself um, where I'm at today, but I also see how it's impacted me. Um, and that really is, is, why I'm vulnerable about some of these things. Um, so yeah, you're right. Like I, um, you know, that had all transpired and, um, the, what my, my relationship with my stepfather was not good. Um, so there was a lot of, um, I'll just say, you know, abuse essentially in our house of of different kinds, not sexual, but you know, verbal and physical. And so the male influence in my life was, was very poor. And I will say the one positive influence I had was my grandfather, my, my maternal grandfather. And he passed my senior, junior year of high school. No, no, I'm sorry. He passed when I was around 20. So it was like all of the positives that I had in my life of, of male influences was wrapped up in that one person. And then I had these negative experiences by really those men that, that shaped that, right? You are able to come forward and show, you know, even just by doing this interview, the good, the bad, and the ugly about our lives as women, especially when we've lived lives. I know that in one of your P in your PR firm, you do work with people that write books I'm going to talk to you mm-hmm. about that in a second. First, I want to know, do you write? Do I write? That's a good question. Um, I used to be a, I journaled a lot. So I feel like because I write for my career so much, and it's actually a different part of kind of writing, right? I write a lot for about leadership pieces for our clients. I do a lot of, you know, press facing things that are writing. I don't do as much now as I probably should. Just like I don't meditate twice a day, just like my, I used to do my prayer journaling. There's a lot of non-self-care going on right now at the current time. Um, and writing was one of those very therapeutic things that has always helped me that has kind of fallen off. But I can say about writing, when I do write and get those words down on paper, I find it helps me a lot. So it's not for recognition or lack of recognition about writing being beneficial. It's simply something I haven't prioritized. I don't want to say I don't have time. It's because I haven't prioritized making time for it. And it is something I need to get back to doing for sure. Wonderful. But that, but that makes sense. I mean, we all struggle with that until someone sits down and actually commits to writing their book. It's a lot of that. I need to get to it. I need to make time. I need to find time. Right. And time is this construct that we're always struggling with. So, you know, you'd work with writers and as I do as well. So I understand I hardly have time to write because I'm so busy working with writers and you're working with writers. And so when someone comes to you, you've mentioned Stephen Covey, right? And the end in mind. Uh-huh. How do you look at where they want to go with their book as writers, as people? And, and how do you help them put out that persona that's like a celebrity, like a personality, like authors now have to have more. They just can't be behind the desk in the dark room and put out a book and it's all fine. They have to get out there. So how, how would right. you balance that for them with their story? Like what, how would you go through the history that they have and what should be put out there and what, what maybe isn't necessary to tell what's oversharing? Those are all great questions. And there's a couple of points in there, I think. So 
So to start with, you know, as far as kind of making time, it's it's similar to most PR people. There's two types. There's the journalists, right? We most public relations professionals um, that study this at college level, we go to journalism school and you have the people that love to write, which wasn't me. Okay. <laughs> and then you have, <laughs> and not because I was bad at it, it just wasn't, I, I'm a people person. And so I like yeah. chatting and I like strategy. And so for me, it, it was always that side of public relations that I really gravitated towards. I do have journalists on my team for that reason that love writing, and that's wonderful. And we approach it, you know, with both of us, the, the journalist saying we need to tell the story and me figuring out, and this is really addressing that first question that you brought up is, you know, that when we talk about um, starting or beginning with the end in mind, that to me is the, the building block of strategy. So mm-hmm. people write books for different reasons. Some it's like, they, they, as I said, it's therapeutic. They want to get their story out. They have a great story to, to tell. They want to uplift others, right? And so that strategy is very much looking at that book and saying, how do we sell it? How do we have a great reach? How do we get this? In my case, it would probably be women's hands, you know, that maybe struggled with some of the same things. Um, and so that strategy is going to look much different than, you know, clients, one of the clients I'm working with now, who is, you know, she's a business owner, and she recognizes that writing a book is going to help position her as a thought leader in her industry. She's got a unique story. Um, She's, we're looking at angles and hooks, and I'm not, I'm not a, a writing coach like you are, you know, so for me looking at it, I'm like, okay, so what we're telling me is we want to get more speaking engagements. We want to drive recognition and credibility of your business. And so the strategy, knowing that that's the end game, right? So the strategy for the book looks very different. And so we build it really thinking with that end piece in mind. Um, I think public relations, and many people say this, and I, of course, am a believer, is one of the most effective ways to build your credibility um, as well as cost effective, right? So it's great for authors that are thinking about writing a book and wanting to get that book out there. But we really, just getting your name out there is, isn't effective. We really have to start with that strategy piece and build from there. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I, I look at books and I agree with you. <clears throat> if somebody wants to write a book about their journey and they have lessons to share and, you know, they don't want to spend marketing dollars or PR money and they just want to self publish and be maybe an Amazon bestseller and get the book out that way. I, I, I love those authors. I work with authors of that ilk, but I also find people that come to me that want to go big and, I say to them, are you ready to put money behind that big? Because if you want to go all the way to the top, it takes money. It takes marketing dollars. It takes PR dollars. And someone like yourself to be behind their image, looking for those hooks, right? Looking for those tags and those moments and those opportunities to drive them forward. And you get very excited when you talk about this, which I'm happy to hear, right? Because (laughs) books are exciting. They're Especially, you know, when we're at a time when people need more and more knowledge and they're striving to learn more and be ahead of the curve and books, books are a great way, great way to do that. When you are out doing PR for yourself, how is that different than when you're doing PR for someone else? How is, who is that woman that has gotten to where you are today? How do you feel when you're in public and when you're in camera? That's a great question. Um, I would say PR for myself is kind of twofold. I, I, and I think this is for everyone. We all have certain things about what we do um, that are, 
how should I say this, that are um, digested or attracted to different segments of people, right? So while I've got my entrepreneurial journey and my personal story, that might not be what brings in business, although it does, right? People have said that I think you're relatable. I appreciate the fact that you share some of these things. I want to work with you because I relate. So there's that piece. But for that, that, that for me is almost just like a, a self-project where I know other women. Um, and this is a part of why we launched this presence program because we see this in women that we work with that are sometimes brilliant, have great ideas, are good at what they do. They just lack that self-confidence to get in front of a camera or get on stage. And I can tell you that when I share with people that that's something that I struggled with my entire life, that self-esteem and uh you know, it, it manifests differently in some people. With mine, it was always very much like, hey, I'm, I'm, look at me. I, I want to tell you how good I am, you know, and how great I am instead of just doing those things. Um, you know, you might have people in your life that struggle with self-image as well. And it's not them being fearful of getting on the camera. It's them, you know, almost wanting to do those things, if, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, um, but then does. also once I'm doing them, I'm terrified, right? Like doing news and press and the thought of getting up on a stage or I couldn't even go into meetings with people that reported to me and share in meetings without my voice shaking. That's how afraid I was because I was constantly thinking about what other people thought about me. And it wasn't positive what I thought they thought about me. Um, I can tell you it takes a lot of self-work as well as practice doing it. Um, it's almost self-fulfilling that when you get up there and you get positive responses to what you're saying or that you're, what you're sharing or people say you're really good at what you do, you feel better about it and it makes you more confident to do it the next time. And so, you know, I always, I started with the mentality of teaching others and saying those who can't do teach, right? Right. I'm going right. to do shine, but, <laughs> but please don't make me do it. Um, I've gotten much better at that. And I think because of the self-work I have done um, and the practice I have done just being in front of camera and speaking to others and really caring about what it is that I do, um, that all kind of, kind of came uh, into fruition. So I'm thankful for that. Um, but if you're struggling with that and people say like, Ugh, I know I need PR for my business, but I just, we have women that we work with, especially that are brilliant. I mean, they're doctors, they have their PhDs, they're professors at these amazing universities. And they'll say, I'll do print interviews, but I don't want to do anything on camera. I don't like how I look. I don't like how I sound. And so if you're an author that's struggling with that um, and you're, you're comfortable writing your story and putting it in a book, but you don't want to be that person that's out there doing PR, uh, that's something that we can work with because we recognize, especially as women, that, it's, that there's two elements to that, right? There's, there's that personal self-assurance and there's that practice of getting out there and doing that and feeling confident in what you're putting forth. And so we work with both sides of that when we're working with our clients and especially authors. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because what I've learned in getting up on the stage and, and taking risks and speaking in front of people is I felt all those things, all those things. But also I've learned how that I am moving a lot faster in my mind than people are ingesting. So I can slow down. I don't have to say so much. I don't have to be as entertaining as I think I have to be. Because in my mind, I'm already like, I have to be this and I have to be that and I have to say 7000 things and I have to talk really fast. But in reality, when I breathe and just deliver what I'm intended to deliver and be, it always works out really, really well. And I don't even think about what other people are thinking about me because I'm in my body. And I think right. a lot well, of I've people... Yeah, <laughs> I was just gonna say I've heard you speak, and I and I think you're pretty funny. So I wouldn't worry about that because it's just when you're authenticity, right? When you're yourself, your best your best uh, 
traits shine and you're engaging and you're funny. So I'm just going to give you that Thank little, you. little stupid as you that. You're Thank welcome. you. You're hired <laughs> for my next book. You're hired for my next book. <laughs> Wonderful. The, it's it. interesting because I also come from trauma and there's one thing that I don't know if you experience this, but one thing I've had to learn is self-regulation. Um, and maybe it's, you know, I'm in sobriety now, so I see it better and I'm more conscious of it, but I get fearful that I'm going to overshare or regurgitate, or like you said, you're funny. I'm afraid I'm over the top. Like I'm too funny. Like I'm too crazy. Like who's that woman? She's swearing and she's saying all this and I'm, and then I have to go, well, I, at least I'm going to touch the people that like that. So do you find that sometimes you have to modulate in terms of overcompensating because of not wanting to be seen for so long? I think with any communications, you have to know your audience and you have to be able to read a room, right? And um, I think as people that have gone through certain traumas, and, and I believe everyone has gone, we're all recovering from something is one of my you know favorite sayings, whether that's codependency or um, right. you know, yes. losing others, it's, it's it is. We're all, we all have kind of that thing that we deal with. But in that being said, we all have to be able to kind of read a room and figure out what information is suitable in one group and, and not the other. You know, when I'm speaking with executives and, you know, training them on how to deal with the media or crisis communications, which is a very timely topic with, the, with everything that's going on right, in the world. Right. Um, and that's a whole tangent I could go down right now, but um you know, in those in those times, I might not be as transparent with some of my personal struggles. But yesterday, you know, we were doing a what's called our presence training with women entrepreneurs, where we give them tools to really be able to do some self-generated PR. And yeah, we're vulnerable in those rooms, you know, because those women are sharing their stories with us. And I can tell you that that's where people connect, right? So this is why we have journalists on our team. Um, my co-founder, she's our director of media training, but she's a journalist. She works at CNN and she is very much about connecting, right? So she says like, you know, share those things about yourself. And she will ask those questions until literally people yesterday are moved to tears. I'm like, you don't mm. have to make them cry, right? But, um, you know, there's, <laughs> Crying's good. There's if, you, if they cry, they buy, yes. people say. <laughs> yes. Well, I, ooh, that I like that. I know. I know. I hear it and I'm like, it's true, but I really don't like it, the concept behind it, but it is true. So I know I heard that yeah. from a salesperson, like a hardcore salesperson. And I think it, to some degree, it is true. It is true. Um, but that's not why I, I, I'm not happy with you. I'm not like, Ooh, I'm going to sell you something now that you're crying. That, that doesn't, that doesn't feel right. good for me, but, um, but I get it. The last question I wanted to ask you is something that really stuck out for me. And we do have male listeners, so we're not, you know, you know, we're not bashing the male race here, but, um, you had mentioned kind of leveling the playing field for women to receive more coverage where it's typically dominated by men. Can you just explain that a little bit more and kind of forecast a little bit into the, to the future on how you see that shifting a little bit? Sure. So just like you, you have male listeners, we have male clients, right? So we don't bash males either. We love working with our male clients and we give them the same level of, of, service and, um, you know, partnership that we do any of our clients. But again, I still to this day, and I've been doing PR for almost 20 years, have never had a male that has told me they're not confident about, um, you know, being on camera or 
they don't want to put themselves out there a pitch because they don't want to come across as bragging. And not to say that that doesn't exist, but I just don't encounter it. And so we have found that. We've also seen statistics show that women position as thought leaders in the media, they appear that way less than 20%. So what that says is that our, our media is dominated by male industry thought leaders. 80, over 80% of those featured are male. Wow. Um, if that makes sense. Women get a ton within the entertainment space and, and items like that. But if you look across traditional media, business media, women represent tw- less than 20% of those that are appearing in industry. And so for us, we, you know, we started to dig in to why is that? You know, this is what studies have shown. And while we don't want to put the onus on women and say, you know, well, if you just pulled up your bootstraps and put yourself out there more, <laughs> you would, you know, you would be getting more press. We do know that this is something that has to be tackled within media at its core. We also believe that there are things that we can do to help enable you to to put yourself out there and generate more press. So our whole hope is by educating women, you know, both allowing them and trying to breed confidence within them, um, but also giving them the tools to do so, to show them how to pitch themselves with confidence, to show them how to, um, you know, have great on-camera interviews or great, you know, print interviews where they're confident and they're sharing um, things that really help them point back to their business and ROI, that we will be able to level some of that playing field and maybe change some of those perceptions and those percentages where women are at the forefront. That when you open up a magazine, it's not, you know, you have all 80% men and less than 20% women, but that it's a great mix. And so we believe by starting that, you know, we started presence locally in Charlotte, but we also take this around the United States that we'll be able to equip women to do that. And that really is the driving hope for us as presence is that we know having more women get pressed helps them help be more successful and whether it's selling books or helping different industries, right? And that helps them support their communities and their families. And so the effect, while it might seem small of like helping women get more press, it can really be seen across industries and be seen across economies. And that is really our hope is, is that we can help, you know, shift and move the needle a bit on that. Thank you. That was a wonderful answer and clarified exactly what I was asking. And I really appreciate the time you've taken today to speak with us on the podcast. I hope you continue to be shining as brightly and beautifully as you are over there in Charlotte. And uh, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for uh, not letting me get to the point where I actually cried. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good day. Thank you too. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. To make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to know more about how to write a book, check us out at a storyinside.com. Thank you.